Well, brothers and sisters, let's turn to Colossians 2. I have some great truth from the Word of God to share this morning. And um, let's pray that God will make our hearts open to it. Father, we come before you grateful for your Word. Grateful for your Spirit. You've given us everything we need for life and for godliness through these two things, your word and your spirit. Father, we thank you that your spirit dwells in us now. Lord, we pray that your spirit would guide us into all truth. Father, you'd help us to see our blind spots, to see things that are tucked away in our beliefs that don't line up with your word. Father, I pray that you would begin to set us free more and more today to love Christ, to become more like him, and to be used for his purposes in this world. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. All right. We've had a wonderful weekend with Lou here. And if you haven't had a chance to hear the messages, I would encourage you to hear those. They're excellent messages on communication and the character qualities that you need that God has to build into your life to be able to really communicate well with your spouse and with with other people as well. As we said, Paul is very concerned about the Colossian Christians. They have started off well. He sees faith and he sees hope and he sees love. He sees the fruit of God's gospel growing in them. But he has a concern, and the concern is that there are certain ones who have come in among them who, have, who are acting as teachers, and it all sounds wonderful what they're teaching. The problem is that it's taking away from Christ. It's taking away from people's freedom in Christ to become all that they need to be. And we see the declaration again in 2, verses 13 through 15. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So here we are, we're dead, we're bound, Christ comes in. And he makes us alive. He sets us free. God takes the debt and nails it to the cross. We have been forgiven. We are his children. We have been set free to live for Christ. But some very well-meaning people who want to be holy come in among the Colossian people. And they want those people to be holy. And so they have a plan. And their plan is, here, we got some more regulations and rules you need to follow. You need to do this and this and this and this. And so they begin to put these people into spiritual bondage. Notice what he says in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or these religious festivals and the Sabbath days. What is all this? As Chloe talked last week about the the religious festivals that the Jews were involved in. The clarion call of this message is, do not let legalism rob you of Christ's liberty. 
Now, we all have a propensity for legalism. It's just kind of how we're default wired. And we want people to tell us exactly how to live the Christian life. And we love five steps and seven steps. And we love all kinds of explanations of how we are to live all this stuff out. And so when someone comes with solutions, we write them all down and we can't wait to do them. And some of that can be helpful. But a lot of it begins to become binding. There's two ditches on the road of righteousness. On the, on the left side or right side, whichever way you want to do it, left side, is licentiousness. Licentiousness says, hey, I've been set free in Christ. Grace abounds. God no longer cares whether I sin or not, and I'm just going to do whatever I want. On the other side, well, we, we can't sin at all, which is true. Therefore, to protect and make sure we don't sin, we're going to put a lot of extra barriers and rules and regulations in place to make sure this doesn't happen. That's called legalism. In the London Baptist Confession of 1689, there's a whole chapter called of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. And this is what they say, the liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists of the following, freedom from the guilt of sin. Isn't that amazing? The condemning wrath of God. We're free from the wrath of God. The rigor and the curse of the law. What does he mean? That I have to keep the law perfectly and if I don't, I go to hell. We never could do that, could we? We never could completely keep God's law. And so it's not saying we don't obey God's law. What it's saying is I, I can live for Christ and not, be, and not carry out the law perfectly because nobody can do that. And in their being, delivered from the present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation, and also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of a slavish fear, but as childlike love and willing mind. We have a heavenly father who loves us. And we no longer have to walk around in fear that we, that we, that we committed this sin or this sin. We should be taken serious, seriously. When God brings it to our attention, we need to take care of it. But we have a God who's not looking to swat us every time we, if I wake up, good. Anytime we step out of line, he loves us. And he has a plan to transform us into the image of Christ. He says, all which are common also to believers under the law, the substance of them, but under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged because they've been set free from the ceremonial law in the Old Testament because that was all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we don't have to keep all the ceremonial laws anymore. We are free because now the reality has come. Jesus is here. We don't have to keep looking to the shadow. It's like the man who's away in, the war, in wartime and he has the pictures of his family and every night he looks at them and he holds them and he prays for them and he kisses those pictures and he can't wait to be at his family. And then he's finally, he finally gets to come home. 
And he comes home and he greets his family and he goes into the room and puts up all the pictures. He's just focused on the pictures. And here's the family going, Dad, aren't you home? What's the deal? He's focused on what? The shadow. He's not focused on the what? Reality. My family is here. I can hold my wife. I can kiss my children. We can go play baseball in the front yard. This is what happens when we get into the rules of the Old Testament, the ceremonial law, and we focus on that as opposed to focusing on Christ. That was all a picture pointing us to who? Jesus. He's here now. He is the reality of what we focus on. Point two, they say, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. God does not need the doctrines or commandments of men. Which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of a conscience is to betray the true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith, an absolute and blind obedience, and it's to destroy the liberty of conscience and reason. He says, if you choose to obey man-made rules and regulations, you will lose your freedom to do what God calls you to do because you're going to be so busy over here in the minutia following the little rules that somebody thought about and made up or you thought about and made up. You can't do both. You can't live for Christ and all he's called you to live for and also, oh, I've got these projects over here I've got to do because so-and-so said this is the best way to live the Christian life. So in... In page on number two, he's talking to the legalists who are, now, who are now coming up with their own laws to add to the Bible that people need to keep, to be holy. Point three, we're on the other side of the dish now back to the licentious. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lustful, sinful lust as they do thereby pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction. So they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Christ has set us free to serve him. And yet we can quickly get tangled up in man-made rules and regulations that may come from a completely sincere heart. Completely sincere. The problem is, though, as we'll get into in a second, we're adding to God's word. What is legalism? Legalism is the belief that I can become more acceptable to God on the basis of what I do. Reducing acceptability before God to an observance of certain rituals and regulations. If I go to church on Sunday, God's going to accept me more. If I read my Bible every day, God's going to hear my prayers. And you name, you name the regulation we have that, thinks, that gives us acceptability. Jesus dealt with the kingpins of legalism which were the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees in Mark chapter five, 7, verses 5 through 8, if you look that up right quick. The Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? You didn't wash your hands properly. This is a huge sin. Why did you not do this? And Jesus said to them, well, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines or as God's word, the commandments of who? Men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold tightly to the tradition of men. This was the Pharisees. Jesus walks on the scene in Christian liberty, proclaiming repentance and faith and the gospel, and he, he blows their world sky high. And you, and you would think if you read the Bible that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath because his observance of the Sabbath didn't line up with their observance of the Sabbath. Legalism is the performing of divine or man-made rules to achieve or maintain a right standing with God. I'm not going to be close to God unless I do this and this and this and this and this. Did the Bible command you to do that? No, but I think this is a great idea, so I'm going to do this. I'm going to have an hour and a half quiet time every day. I'm going to pray for everybody in the church three times each day. I'm going to go next door and share the gospel. If I don't do those things, I'm not accepted by God. Do you see how it begins to become enslaving? All sincere things, all good things. But we lose sight of the fact, how are we accepted by God? By Christ alone. He is the one that gives us that acceptance. Lou Priolo gives his definition of legalism. Elevating man-made laws to the same level of culpability as God-given commands. Legalism is a focus on the outward regulation. Guess what doesn't get touched when you're focusing on outward regulations? The heart. So you could be checking all the boxes. Being a good little Baptist or Methodist or Catholic or whatever you are checking all the outward boxes and your heart can be as wicked as it can be. Let's look at the characteristics of the legalist. We're going to look at the characteristics of the legalist and we all again have this tendency. Don't turn me off and go, oh, I don't, work, I don't struggle with that. We all struggle with this. Some more than others. Here's how it starts out. It starts out with a maybe a well, a healthy, self-imposed personal restriction that'll help you walk without sin. So there's something that you're struggling with in your life. You go, you know what? If I don't do X, that's going to help me in my battle against sin. Okay? And so I, I avoid the situation I'm in or, I, or whatever the situation is, I have this little, little rule I put in place. 
It's something that I have. It's a wisdom issue. There's nothing forbidding it in the scriptures. And so I put that in place. Then this little rule I put in place, it begins to get fuzzy whether that's a rule I put in place or is that a rule God gave me? And so now that little rule becomes a situation where I begin to export it to everybody. God convicted me I shouldn't have a TV because if I watch TV, I have issues with lust. So therefore, I throw the TV out. That's such a great idea. I'm going to export it to everybody else. Everyone here needs to get rid of their TV ASAP. The elders will be coming around to check your homes to make sure you have no TVs. Was that, was that sincere? It's absolutely sincere. It avoids, does it avoid? Yeah, it avoids that, all right. We got rid of that. Have we dealt with the heart yet? Haven't dealt with the heart. We just got rid of that thing. And before long, we get rid of this thing and that thing and 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 this thing and that thing. And next thing, here we are. In a little box. We can't go do anything. We can't go be around anybody. Because that might cause me to what? Sin. But didn't Jesus come to set me free? He did. The problem is I'm not following his formula to be set free. I've created my own little plan that sounds very religious and very pious. But in reality, it's not effective. And it keeps me from doing what God's called me to do. So it starts with this idea, God's word said this, but I need to help God's word out by adding some hedge. And this is what the Pharisees did. They understood that one of the reasons they were thrown into exile is because they disobeyed the Sabbath. So the Sabbath's pretty simple. You have a day of rest. There's not a lot of regulation on the Sabbath. It's pretty much you have a day to rest. It's a gift from God. And they said, you know what? We've got to make sure people don't disobey the Sabbath. So we're going to add a thousand rules to this, to, this, to this command of God. And you can't walk through the field and rub, rub the grain in your hands and have a bite. Even though Deuteronomy 23 says, hey, if you're out going around, you're walking through a field, you're free to grab any head of grain in your hands and eat it. Or you're in the vineyard. You can go by, you can eat all the grapes you want. What a freedom. What a blessing. Now, you don't go in there with your harvester and take everybody's crop. But you're free to walk through the field, grab the grain in your hand, eat. Unfortunately, in Luke chapter 6, the disciples do that. And guess who's watching? The Pharisees. Because Jesus didn't know that when you rub it in your hands, that's harvesting. And when, you, and, and when you rub it in your hand, then when you rub it, that's threshing. And then when you blow it, that's winnowing. That's work. And they blast him for that. Let's turn to Luke. Chapter 6. Okay. So they built this hedge, and they had all these rules about the Sabbath. And Jesus, in this passage in 6, all the way 
He has two encounters with them. One is the, the disciples going through the field, rubbing the grain in their hands. The other one is he calls up a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath to the synagogue. And he's going to do something. He's going to heal him. That's working on the Sabbath. You can't do that. You understand the Jews had 39 categories of things you had to do to keep the Sabbath. They had a book of 24 chapters of things you had to do to keep the Sabbath. So the thing is, really, unfortunately, in our zeal, what we've, what we've done is God's word isn't sufficient. If it was sufficient, he'd have the 24 chapters we had in here and the 39 different categories. God couldn't just say, hey, take the day off and have a rest with your family. We have to fill in the blanks. And so we do. We do this with drunkenness, right? Thou shalt not get drunk. Yeah, but you know what? A lot of people were going to take a drink of wine. And that's going to lead them to do what? Get drunk. I've got a great idea. No more wine. No more alcoholic beverages of any sort, shape, or kind. We tried that in the 1920s here, didn't we? The prohibition movement. Did it stop people from drinking? No. Can there be people who drink and don't get drunk? Yes. Is it a sin to drink wine? No. But you've come to the point where you believe that is as binding as what? God's word. It becomes even more binding than God's word. How about movies? Hey, there's a lot of bad stuff in Hollywood. Really bad stuff. There's, immor there's immorality. There's worldliness. This is all true, correct? Therefore, I have my conviction, and it is I'm not going to watch any movie. You can have that conviction. Or I'm only going to watch G-rated movies. You can have that conviction. But it's not just good enough for me to have that conviction. Everybody has to have that conviction. So I have to come around to everybody, and if somebody went and watched a PG movie, if I don't say anything, I'm going to at least go, hmm. I wonder how spiritual they are. I know how spiritual I am. I'm, hmm, I'm good. Modesty. The Bible says be modest. You know what the Bible doesn't do? It doesn't give us a nice definition of modesty. There's a spectrum of modesty. What if you're, oh, where you are on the spectrum of modesty isn't the same as somebody else on the spectrum of modesty? Well, I've got to convince them that mine is the right way. We can only have the skirt three inches below the knee. Cannot go any higher than that. Where did you get that from the Bible? Oh, I didn't, but God told me. Whoops. If that's your conviction, that's fine. As long as you know it's a what? Conviction, and it's not what? God's word. Our danger comes when we take our conviction, let it sit and stew for a while, and it becomes God's word. And then we export it to everybody. So now everybody has to get rid of their TV set. Everybody has to have their skirts at this exact length. Everybody has to have their head covered if that's one of our convictions. 
Everybody has to have an hour and a half quiet time. Well, I can't stay at this church any longer. They don't all have an hour and a half quiet time. So I'm going somewhere else to go to church. All of a sudden you find out, hey, it's just us. Me and my family. Matter of fact, we disagree now. So we all have our own church in our each different bedrooms. Because our convictions are all different. <clears throat> Courtship and dating. Hey, there's a spectrum here. But, and I have a conviction of what I'm going to do in courtship and dating. That's wonderful. You need to come up with what you're going to do. That's a wisdom decision. You need to think through it. But I just feel so strongly about this that I need to tell everybody this is the way they need to do it. Did God say that? Either as a command or as a principle? Did he say that? Well, no, not, not. But, but you know, if, if we had another chapter in the Bible, he would have that covered. Here's Matthew Henry. We heard this two weeks ago. Weighing in on this whole issue of adding to God's law. And th- friends, this may sound like this is just, you know, the pastor's on his hobby horse. This was Paul on his hobby horse. This binds people and keeps them from doing what God's called them to do. Matthew Henry, now, now says the apostle, he who, he who censures and condemns his brother for not agreeing with him in those things which the law of God has left indifferent, thereby censures and condemns the law. So when you start making up laws and you start censuring and judging your brother, based not upon the word of God, but upon your convictions or your preferences, that is a problem, and you end up condemning what? The law of God. What have you said? You know, the Bible's just not sufficient. God left this whole area blank, therefore I'm going to help him out, and I'm going to fill it all in. That's what the Pharisees did. So now God's word is not perfect. However, Psalm 19 says what? The word of God is perfect. It revives the soul. God's word is exactly what we need. If you want to have some preferences in some areas, you should. But we need to be careful that we don't export it as God's law. And may I say to you, with the Pharisees, their law trumped God's law. And that's where it goes. First, it's equal with God's law. Next thing, it's even better than God's law. It just kind of goes that way. As if it had done ill in leaving them indifferent. The God's word is ill because it left this situation indifferent. We should, have, we should have had this all filled in for us. He who quarrels with his brother and condemns him for the sake of anything not determined in the word of God does thereby reflect on that word of God as if it were not a perfect rule. Let us take heed of judging the law for the law of the Lord is perfect. If men break the law, leave that to judge them. In other words, if they're going to break the law, then you deal with them accordingly. It's clear. If people break the law of God, we have to talk to them. We have to confront them. We have to encourage them to come away from sin. Because if you break God's law, that's what? Sin. If we break your conviction, is that sin? Do I hear a no anywhere in the audience? No. 
If, we break, if somebody breaks your preference or your conviction, it's not breaking God's law. It's not sin. They are free to have their conviction. Their skirt can be three inches below the knee. This one could be two inches above the knee. This could be all the way to the floor. It's okay. Because there is freedom in this spectrum of modesty. And there's a whole lot of areas like that, which is the case. This is what Matthew Henry says. This is a heinous evil. Because it is to forget our place that we ought to be doers of the law and it is to set up ourselves above it as if we were to be judges of it. Once we set up our own little rules and regulations, we make them equal with God's law, then we've judged God's law. Now we're rising above God's law and we're telling everybody else how to live their life and we fail to do what? Obey God's law. Isn't that interesting how it all works? He who is guilty of the sin here cautioned against is not to be a doer of the word. He is a judge. He assumes, I love this, he assumes an office in a place that does not belong to him. Our job is not to make God's word. Our job is not to create new laws by God. Our job is to submit ourselves humbly to the word of God. And if we have areas where we struggle and we need to put in some preference things, we do that and some restrictions. But that's between us and the Lord and we work through those issues. And he will be sure to suffer for his presumption in the end. Those who are most ready to set up for judges of the law generally fail most in their obedience to it. Did we hear that? Those who are most ready to set up for judges of the law generally fail most in their obedience to it. Why is that? It's because our man-made laws have no power to change us. That's from the word of God and the spirit. And yet our dependence becomes upon these laws. Now we've had two men in conservative movements in the last year that have been exposed for situations that are sin. And yet they were extremely diligent to lay out all kinds of rules and regulations. It did not curb sin. As much as you have your convictions and you have your, 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 your little barriers that you have in place to protect yourself from sin, if you don't go beyond that, you're not going to deal with your sinful heart. So we, we, we do this. We build these, these, um, these bridges. We build these, um, these monolithic buildings of our own rules and regulations that have to be kept. So once there was a man, and he was walking down near a bridge. And when he got to the bridge, he noticed there was a man standing on the rail. And obviously, he getting ready to jump. And so the man distraught, uh, was so distraught, he said to himself, don't jump, I, I can help you. Oh, how can you help me? Asked the man on the rail. And the first man replied with a question of his own. Are you a Christian? Yes, yes I am. That's, that's wonderful. So am I. Are you a Catholic or a Protestant? Uh, I'm a Protestant. Well, that's, that's great. So am I. Well, what sort of Protestant are you? 
Are you a Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, or something else? I'm a, I'm a lifetime Baptist, said the man on the rail. Praise the Lord, came the reply. So am I. Let me ask you this. Are you a Northern Baptist or a Southern Baptist? I'm a Northern Baptist. Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist or a Northern Liberal Baptist? I'm a, I'm a Northern Conservative Baptist. Well, call Ripley's. This is amazing. So am I. Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist fundamental or a Northern Conservative Baptist reformed? The man on the rail thought for a moment, and then he declared, My father raised me as a Northern Conservative Baptist reformed. It's a miracle, said the first man. Put her there, pal. So am I. Then he asked, Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist reformed Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist reformed Great Plains region? And the man on the rail said, that's easy. My family has always been Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes region. This is miracle of miracles. I don't, I don't often meet a brother who shares my own heritage. One final question. Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes region council of 1855? Or are you a Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes region council of 1872? The man on the rail replied instantly, Since the days of my great-grandfather, we have always been Northern Conservative Baptist Reform, Great Lakes Region Council of 1872. This statement was followed by an awkward pause. Looking up, the first man cried out, Die, heretic! And threw him off the bridge. It's laughable, isn't it? And yet, when we set up our own rules and our own, our own regulations and our own man-made laws, nobody ever keeps all of them, do they? And at the point we finally discover they haven't, what happens? We begin to distance ourselves, don't we? May you throw them off the bridge. That's probably a little harsh, but okay. So let's look at the characteristics. One is it starts out in a very genuine sense just trying to establish some extra guidelines for ourselves, which we have the freedom to have wisdom decisions in our life. Okay? Number two, they're always, uh, a legalist is always watching to see if people will obey their man-made rules. Look at Luke 6, 7. Jesus is here. He's in the synagogue. There's a man there with a withered hand, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Wow. So here we are on the Sabbath. Here's a man who has a shriveled hand, and Jesus is talking to him, bringing him up to the front, and they're like, okay. Are we more concerned with our our regulations and our rules than we are with people? Or do we really see everything through our rules and regulations? Three, legalists are critical and judgmental. Notice what happens here in the first part with the grain. Some of the, this is verse 2. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath? Had Jesus broken God's law? No. Nope. He did something worse than that. He broke their law. Holding people to their own man-made standards. 
So we have these standards in our life. We've put them up here. It's not just for us personally now. We begin to view everybody through our little grid of our convictions. Legalistic rules and regulations rise to have equal and greater authority than the scripture. Number four, legalists are controlling. You don't have the freedom to hold some of the conviction. You must hold my conviction. And if not, I'm either going to judge you, I'm going to disfellowship with you, I'm going to do something. Because again, my conviction has become God's word. Romans 14.4 says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Is, it is, there, is before his own master that he stands or falls? And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to uphold him. He says, you shouldn't pass judgment on another servant. Romans 14 is about issues that are not sin. One brother's eating meat sacrificed to idols. Another brother's eating meat is not eating meat sacrificed to idols. That's not a sin issue. One brother's obeying in a, sa- a Sabbath. The other is not. That's not a sin issue. He says, don't judge people on issues that are not sin. Let God be their judge. The Bible is really clear about sin. There's, all, there's lists of sin. Galatians chapter 5, there's a whole list of sin. 1 Corinthians 5, lists of sins that are done. Colossians 3, we're going to get into that. Colossians 3, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. There's plenty of things that are clear sin that we need to deal with people on. The Bible is clear that we should not judge the world. So let's understand what our category is here. If a person is an unbeliever, our job is not to walk up there and try to clean them up. I can't believe you're wearing that dress three inches below your knee, or it should be all the way down to the floor. That's not our first response to the world. I can't believe you have tattoos, or I can't believe you have this or that. Our response to the lost world is what? Here's Jesus. Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells them to avoid the sexually immoral. And Paul says, I'm not talking about the people in the world. They're out there. It's understood you're going to be out there among them as you live life. They are there. You're not going to be able to avoid them. He said, I'm talking about people in the church who claim to be a believer who are sexually immoral. So we should not judge the world. We should give them what? The gospel. We should call them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, because our rules become so important to us, we almost sometimes lead with our rules. Oh, I need to share with them about the importance of not watching television. That's going to change their life. It's not. In Romans 14, we're looking at the weaker and stronger brother. Cody talked about this last week. We have this issue where you have a weaker brother, a stronger brother. The weaker brother has come out of pagan temple worship. He's watched these animals be sacrificed to these pagan gods. And in his conscience, he goes, I can't eat that meat. It's been sacrificed to an idol. The reason he's a weaker brother is he doesn't understand God's word. Because God's word says God made every, everything God made is good. And to be received with thanksgiving. The stronger brother has no problem having the steak from that sacrifice. 
That's the best cut of meat there is here. And it's at a bargain price. I can't beat that. Why could he do that? Because he understands that everything God has made is good. Yes, it was sacrificed to an idol, but idols are what? Nothing. There's only one God. Now, the the stronger brother has to be careful around the weaker brother and not cause him to sin. But the weaker brother is not meant to stay a weaker brother forever. A weaker brother needs to be informed by the word of God onto his conscience so that he can get to the point going, you know what? That meat is just as good as any other meat. I'm going to enjoy it. It's good. Sometimes in our lives we are in bondage to sin. Maybe it's lust. And so for a season, we need to make sure that we have every access to possibilities of lust cut off for us for a while to deal with that. Okay? And we need to have somebody following us around to make sure we don't do something we shouldn't do. There's a place for that. But then, after we've done the outward barricading of sin, it's time to deal with what? The heart. And God, by the gospel, has given us the power to deal with the heart. This is what's liberating. The person who couldn't help but lust every time he saw a girl can be set free from that. The person that's bound up with worry can be set free from that. The person who's bound up with a slanderous, condemning spirit can be set free from that, not because of your regulations and rules, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the spirit that lives in us. And so for a season, we may need to have those barricades up, but as our heart is transformed, we should be able to go into the mall and go buy a shirt without having to walk around like this. Is the Holy Spirit more powerful than our sin? Yes, he is. Praise God. If your whole life is about avoiding, 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 we're not dealing with the heart. Christ died to set you and me free in our heart so that there can be an incredibly immodest picture on the walls we walk through the mall and we can just go, okay, I'm not going to watch that. I'm moving on down the road. Nor Nor do I desire to look at that because of what? The grace of God alone. The next one, legalists are proud and arrogant. Once I've established my rules, and I'm now faithfully keeping my rules, I look down my nose at everyone else who doesn't keep it like me. The Pharisees are incredibly proud. Confronting the God of the universe that he's not keeping the Sabbath. Confronting the God of the universe that he healed a man on the Sabbath of a withered hand. Can you, can you wrap your mind around that one? Our pride has no limits when we become followers of man-made religion. It's just another way to prop up our ego and prop up our, our pride. Number six, 
They are blind to their own sin. Legalists are absolutely blind to their own sin because what? I'm checking the boxes over here on these rules and I've, I've got them all done today. Yay for me. Give me a smiley face. But in their heart, there's incredible wickedness. Look at this in verse 11. So Jesus comes up. He says, I ask you, this is verse 9 of chapter 6 of Luke. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. I love it. I don't want to cause, I don't want to offend these people. Jesus has no problem offending a legalist. A weaker brother? We'll be careful, weaker brother. A legalist? Bring it on. Come on up here, man, with your, with your withered hand. Stand up before everybody. Is it right to heal this man or not? No answer. Stretch out your hand. Wow. Shazam. He's healed. Now look at this. And he did so and his hand was restored. Look at verse 11. But they, who's they? The scribes and Pharisees were filled with fury and and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And they weren't asking, should we head into our birthday party? They were planning how we can do what? Kill him. Is that not blind? Here you're nitpicking over whether it's okay to heal on the Sabbath or not. And as soon as he does it, you have a plan to kill him. Is that, uh, I think murder is like one of the top ten, isn't it? (laughs) One of the top ten. How do you miss that? Because I have my own little rules that make me like a god and puff me up and make me proud. And I measure everybody by them. And that's why everybody shows respect for me because I am the noble, whatever I am. Number seven, they have no compassion for those in need. We are more concerned as legalists with people keeping our rules than caring for hurting brothers. Did they care about this man who had a shriveled hand all his life? They could care less about him. It was all about their rules. How about the good Samaritan? Here are these two religious leaders going down the road. They see this guy. He's been beat up. He's over here on the side of the road. Well, if we touch him, we're going to become become defiled. So we can't do that. So we just leave him there. See, when, when we become legalists, we lose all compassion for people. Compassion for people comes when you get among them. Well, I could never spend time with that person because they have, they're dressed like this or they have a tattoo or, they're, or they, they're drinking or they're whatever. You need to go meet that person. You need to go look in their face and you need to realize they're made in the image of God. They're made in the image of God and they're bound up in sin and you have the only solution to that which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the problem. There is no concern for the people who need it. Matter of fact, remember, Jesus went and ate with the publicans and the sinners, the tax collectors and sinners, and who was upset about that? Oh, 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 I can't believe this. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. This couldn't be done. Does he know who he is he's with? Or the woman woman who was in adultery and he reached out and touched her. Do you, you know who she is? Or the person who was left, do you know he's, he's got this disease? You'll be unclean. 
Oh, my goodness. Such are some of us with our own little rules that we have in place. And we're so focused on them. And the problem is they're not God's rules. So I spend a good part of my life keeping rules that God didn't even command and don't do what God called me to do. That is sin, brothers. Sisters, that is sin. Jesus talks in Luke 6, 3. Guess what? David and them, they were fighting in a war and they came to the temple and they were famished. They were going to die. And the priest came out and says, and David says, got any food? is there any food in the house? He goes, all there is is the showbread, but that's only for the priest. Uh-oh, got a problem. It's for the priest. I'm starving to death. What are we going to do here? And Jesus said, you know what? It was a good thing. They took the bread and ate it, even though they weren't priests. Because God cares about people. He cares about people. He cared about the need. You see, God loves us. The Sabbath is made for us. It's made for us to enjoy. Everything, he, every food he's made is for us to enjoy. If you want to abstain from something, you, you're free to do that. If you have a history of alcoholism in your family and you're afraid that you'll fall into it, you are free to abstain from that. However, Jesus has power over alcoholism. Jesus can set you free. If you choose that you want to avoid it, you're free to do that. You're not free to what? Make it God's word and then push it on to everyone else. Jesus hits the Pharisees head on with legalism. Chapter 23 is an amazing passage. He wears the word hypocrite out in chapter 23. Look at what he does in, in verse 4. He says, they tie up heavy burdens and, they, and, they, and the people cannot bear. They lay them on people's shoulders. They, they themselves will not be willing to help them move a finger. They give them all these rules to keep to the point they're just, they're just completely burdened down by it. Verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor do you allow anyone else. Number one, you're not going to heaven. Why? Because your hope is in your man-made rules. And guess what? As you export your man-made rules, people embrace that instead of what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. What a horrible thing to keep people out of heaven. But I have got this great list of rules. I've got seven steps over here how to solve that problem. And ten steps over here how to solve this problem. What about the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about the fact that we come to him and he gives us forgiveness and he lives within us and he gives us his word and he promises to transform us? What about that? Well, I can't be busy with that. I can't get distracted with that. I've got my rules over here I've got to keep. I got, and you know what? I just thought about five new ones. And the more, here's the thing. The more zealous we are, we can really go to town on that. We can really go to town on it. And the problem is we can be absolutely blind that we're doing it. This is why you have to ask yourself the hard question. Is what I just told that person based upon God's word? Is it a command or a clear principle in scripture? 
Or can I at least give them the caveat, you know, this is something I've tried. It's helped me. It's not God's word. That'd be a good thing to say, wouldn't it? And you don't have to keep it. But why not, instead of that, point them to Jesus and say, Jesus can set you free. And here's some scriptures where Jesus promises to set you free from these things. Trust him. Trust him to set you free. That's the message we should be sharing. Nope, I got 10 more rules over here. If you'll keep those, you're guaranteed to do a whole lot better. Here's 10 rules. Call me in the morning. Tell me how it goes. Number eight or nine, whatever it is, legalists are concerned with outward religion and therefore will not deal with the heart. Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy. God's kingdom is freedom, friends. It's freedom. A lot of us have sin in our life that we've not dealt with, and we've tried all the rules in the world, and it's not dealt with it. If you are bound up in something, come to one of the elders. Let us open the word and point you to Jesus. And put your complete trust and faith in him. Don't give up your liberty. The freedom you have in Christ. You should, be no more, you should have no more rules than are absolutely necessary. And do not add to the word of God. What are the consequences of legalism? Well, we already said it. We judge the law of God, who's the author. We judge the author of the law of God, and we, and we judge our brother. Two, our, our spirituality view is all outward. It's all external. It's what people see. So we're never able to really deal with the heart issues. We lose our liberty in Christ. Here's Sinclair Ferguson. A half-learned Christ makes you susceptible to all kinds of religious teachings that sound right but bring you into bondage. It makes you open and vulnerable to false teaching of Christ plus. This is why Paul is constantly praying, I pray you'll have a knowledge of God. You need a knowledge of God. Why do you need a knowledge of God? Because it will set you free from the false man-made religions that are out there, that are being exported left and right. And Sinclair Ferguson is exactly right. If you, have a, if you only understand half of who Jesus is, and somebody comes along and says, hey, I'm going to tell you how to have victory over, over worry. And I'm going to tell you how to have victory over this. And it's not rooted and grounded in the very word of God and in total dependence upon Jesus Christ. You have now been put into bondage. But it sounds so good. It does because you don't know Jesus and what Jesus can do. This is why you're susceptible to this. For we lose the ability to enjoy God's good gifts. Because our strategy for dealing with sin is no pleasure. Let's get away from pleasure. Let's do nothing. We can't have anything to do with anything that's pleasurable. We've got to run away from that. So we're going to leave everything behind. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Hear that. They departed from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Really? How can you do that? That's so crazy. How can you, you know, believe about demons and their teaching? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, listen to what these people teach, who forbid marriage. That's a good gift from God, isn't it? 
All you men better say amen. Amen. It's a wonderful gift from God. But they forbid marriage and, and create, and uh, who forbid marriage and created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is what? Good. It is good. It is wonderful. Now we have a sinful heart and we can turn it and twist it and do all this and that, but it's good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. Well, I can't, I can't do that. And I can't do this. And I can't do that. And I've got to abstain from this. Why? I just do. I've got to do this. And you just, you, you lose the joy. Now, let me say this to your parents. If your household is dominated by don'ts, 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 don'ts that aren't in the word of God, You're teaching your kids that God is not liberal in his giving. You're teaching him that he's not good. You're teaching him that there's no joy in life. Oh, you're going to have fun with that. You can't go do that. And we're not talking about sin, right? Understand, right? Just things that we do. We can't do that because of X, Y, and Z. We can't do that because of E, B, and C. We can't do that. And you teach them that God didn't set them free for anything. That's why this is, so, this is so dangerous. We lose sight that we're loved by God. Again, the gospel gets replaced. God loves us, Christ died for us. Oh, we remove that to the side because we have some more rules that you have to keep. Here they are, get busy, hit it. Get after them. Five, we shift our trust from Christ working in us to getting on the performance treadmill. If I could just do this, this, and this, I'm going to be spiritual. And here's the sad part. We lose the ability to be transformed because outward regulations have no power to stop sin. That's what he tells us here in Colossians 2.23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Looks great. Great plan. Super, super job. How's it coming with lust? Uh, well, I'm not doing too well. Of course you're not. Because do not handle, do not taste, do not touch does not stop the sinful nature. The power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit do that. It does. We remain the weaker brother because of our lack of knowledge of Christ and his promises. And here's the sad part. Because of our judgmental, censorious spirit, we start dividing the church of Jesus. All the people who believe the modesty is on this side, sit on this side. Those who believe modesty this way, on this side. We start dividing the body over things that were never meant to be divided. And obviously, lastly, Are you kidding? Are we going to really share Jesus with somebody? I don't think we are. Because of our rules and regulations, we never can get among the people who need to hear about Jesus. Because they might might affect us. Brothers and sisters, Christ came to set us free. 
not to sin, but to be able to obey his moral word, to enjoy his fellowship with us, and to enjoy our life as he slowly, day by day, transforms us into the image of his son. There's been a lot said in this message. And you're going to have to say, okay, Lord, can you show me where I have crossed over from obeying your word to now really being involved in just man-made religion? And can I repent and come back to Jesus? And can I not export it to other people and bind them up and bind their consciences up? God's law is beautiful. It's perfect. It revives the soul. It gives, God gives us all we need for life and for godliness. May God give us the grace in the gray areas to hold different views and still love each other. Still love each other. And focus on the main things. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Only you can preach this message, Lord. I cannot. You have convicted me of areas of my life where I have been guilty of this. And I've been proud and arrogant. Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do in this service. May this message not just stop here. May my brothers and sisters continue to think about it, study the passage of Scripture, and examine their hearts. And Father, may we move away from man-made religion and move toward the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.